Hey guys, welcome to this episode with Katie Carrick. She is a mother of two and a trained cytogeneticist. So I took the opportunity to talk to her all about the fascinating field of prenatal cytogenetics and the importance of genetic screening. One of her birth stories takes a little bit of a twist and I can't wait for you to hear it. Let's get to it. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. Hey guys, today's episode is brought to you by Stork Exchange. I am so thankful for Sindel and Ben for sponsoring this episode. And if you haven't heard their birth story, rewind, go back and listen to it. My kindergartners came home and they were literally talking to me this week about recycling, upcycling the environment. And we had a real conversation about baby carriers when we went to Target to pick up a birthday present for one of their friends that was turning six. And I explained to them, look at all of this packaging, look at the plastic, look at all of the materials that were used to make these baby carriers. And then we walked through all of the lines at Target and we looked at all of these different baby items and we had a real conversation. And guys, I'm talking about with a five-year-old and a six-year-old. It's super simple, right? We want to reduce our impact on not only our wallets, but the earth. We want to reduce our footprint on the earth. We are pregnant, we are adopting, we are becoming parents through fostering, and we need baby items. And so what do we do? We go to baby list and we go to Amazon and we go and register for all these brand new items with a lot of packaging. And that is exactly what Sindel and Ben wanted to change. They realized that so many parents just like you and my doula clients were really frustrated with the hassle of trying to buy used online, like think Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, you're driving to some shady area, you have no idea if it's in good condition or not. So that's where they created Stork Exchange. Stork Exchange is truly an online marketplace for baby goods like baby carriers. So you're going to spend less, you're going to use less. And let's face it, you only need these things for a couple of months anyway. So I love it if you checked out their company. It's at storkexchange.co or on Instagram at stork underscore exchange. And tell them what you think. If you are ready to buy, 
Use code BIRTHSTORY for 20% off. All right. Thanks, Sindel and Ben, for sponsoring this episode, and let's get to it. Welcome, Katie, to the Birth Story podcast. Hi there. Hey. Okay, tell us all about you. Who are you? Where are you? And what are we going to talk about today? Okay. So my name is Katie. I'm 32. I'm a mom of two, uh, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. I live out on the West Coast in one of the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. However, I'm actually originally from Gastonia, so (laughs) the Charlotte neck of the woods. Oh, Um, wow. That's so ironic. Okay. I went to NC State for college in Raleigh and then met my husband there and we moved out here. How'd you find the podcast? How did I find the podcast? I also have a podcast, so I listen to a lot of them. (laughs) What's your podcast? It's called Raising Cascadia. It's about parenting in the Pacific Northwest, but of course, a lot of those topics translate to anywhere. So, okay. So in Portland, you have a podcast, Raising Cascadia. And then what else do you do? I'm trained in biological sciences from NC State, go Wolfpack. And I work in cytogenetics, which is uh, chromosomes. I've also done some molecular biology. A lot of my focus originally was in prenatal genetics. So looking at risk factors for trisomy 21 or or Down syndrome a lot of the time, but also really, really rare copy number variations where you're missing small pieces or having extra pieces or even like pieces of chromosomes that have like switch spaces, that kind of thing. I also worked a lot when I was in North Carolina with the NIPT, so the non-invasive test where you can check for that too. Mm -hmm. Um, And now that I'm out here on the West Coast, I've done a lot more um, oncology-based cytogenetics. So, For pediatrics also? Including pediatrics, but but both. uh, Our lab accepts both. And I did that for about four years once we moved here. We moved out here in 2014 and then had my daughter and cut down on my (laughs) lab time significantly. Once she was about a year old, I actually pretty much left and became a stay-at-home mom, which I never saw myself doing just based on how I always thought of myself being. I was like, oh, I'll be a mom, but I'm, I'm never not going to work. You know, like I'm never not going to go to work because like that's just my mindset or whatever. And then I had my daughter and obviously you say a lot of things before you have kids and then, you know, things change. I know. So we could do a whole year. podcast on right. what we said we would never do. hundred percent. And then we do. <laughs> yeah. I came home with her for about a year and was doing actually, it was per diem work. So whenever they had the need for my help and whenever I wanted to, and I would like drop my daughter off with my in-laws for a bit. And it was ideal. And I did that all the way up until I was about eight months pregnant with my son. And then (laughs) I had an accident and hurt myself pretty bad. He was fine. And then stopped, obviously, because I wasn't able to do that. I think we'll get into that in a little bit. Yeah. Um, and from there, I was getting in kind of a really weird place emotionally and started writing just as like a therapy. Turns out I was actually not bad, <laughs> according to other people, at least. Started doing a bit of freelance writing and have done that for about, I guess, like two years now, based on how old my kid is. So. <laughs> So how um, old are both of your children? Your oldest is four? Yes. And then okay. my youngest is two. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So, so I was doing the freelance writing and I was actually 
pretty involved with that and then just recently have taken a position back in the lab. So um, I guess my main deal now is working in the lab and then I do some freelance writing for fun. And then, I mean, that's not for fun. That's also something you get paid for, but like... Well, it's both. Yeah, yeah. And then the the podcast is for fun, (laughs) Raising Cascadia. So that's where Um, I am now. Before we get into your birth stories, Katie, I need to know a little bit more about cytogenetics. And so from the context of our listeners, right? So if I'm a listener right now and I hear you say that and I'm newly pregnant, a lot of questions on listeners' minds, should I do these tests? What do they tell me? What would I do with the information? And so maybe if you could just high level kind of talk about you know, someone who's newly pregnant, especially if they're over the age of 35 and these genetic tests are being recommended, I would love to know your opinion. And then what you see on, what is it, a spreadsheet or something? (laughs) (laughs) Karyotype. (laughs) Okay, there you go. I'll just listen while you talk a little bit about that work. Sure. So cytogenetics is, in the context of prenatal cytogenetics, is when a person is expecting a baby and they come to the doctor and the doctor either says, Hey, you're over 35. And we know that the egg portion of getting pregnant at 35 is like their somewhat arbitrary, but not really cut off. It's just like an average time frame that we've looked at through evidence over time that says egg quality starts to go down around this time because, you know, a woman is born with all the eggs she'll ever have and she ovulates once a month. And so those are the same eggs that have been there the whole time. And science and evidence have said that around 35, on average, they'll start the quality starts to diminish, which means there's an increased chance that you could have chromosomal issues. Typically, it means having an extra chromosome. And the most well-known that I think people know of is It's an extra chromosome 21, which is Down syndrome. There's some other ones too. There's trisomy 13 and trisomy 18 are the next most common, but they're still not super common. But anywho, the long story short is that when there's this, it's called an imbalance of chromosomes because you're supposed typically a human, every cell has 46 chromosomes, 23 pairs. And when those are not imbalanced, it causes different issues. Some of those are more well-known, like Down syndrome, in addition to like the facial features and some of the developmental issues that come along with that. We know there's certain types of like cancer increased risk with Down syndrome. I mean, it's just like, we've studied that long enough that we have a much larger body of evidence than say an extra tiny little piece of something on a random other chromosome. When a woman comes in, typically we used to do what are called, like they were blood screens. And they would take mom's blood and they would look at different hormone levels and they would base it off of their age, their race, and some other factors, plug it into an algorithm and it would give you a risk factor. Like your risk of having a baby with downstream in this pregnancy is like one in 10,000, which is not very high. Yeah. And then the closer it gets to one in, I think 250 was like the cutoff. That's when it gets more likely and it would be considered an increased risk. That's what we used for a while. And then chromosomes, cytogenetics, what I do is where you come into the doctor with either that increased risk from the screening, or they see something on ultrasound, like a increased nuchal thickness, like a, the thickness on the back of the neck, any other number of abnormalities on ultrasound. 
a family history of something. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that would indicate that. Then they would give you the option of like an amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling. I mean, it sounds really scary and it probably is. I haven't experienced it personally. It's a pretty standard procedure at this point. They've been doing it for a very long time. And particularly if you have an experienced doctor, we do it all the time, literally. Let me just like clarify a couple of things. So like typically it's a blood screening or something on an ultrasound. Yeah, you start at that point where there's something that indicates there might be a risk, whether that's a blood screen, which is traditionally what everyone did for a really long time, or at like the the 12-week initial anatomy scan. I think that's around 12 weeks is where they look at like nuchal translucency is what they call it. Okay. And an amniocentesis for everyone listening, right, is where they take that long needle through your belly and it kind of penetrates into the uterus, right? And it pulls out amniotic fluid. Correct. Okay. There's also a earlier test called chorionic villi sampling. So there's villi that are, that's part of the placenta that like, it's like the really tiny pieces because it has to connect to you, right? Mm -hmm. So essentially it's called a CVS and they go in, it's a similar idea where they go in and they take a bit of that villi and then we can use that. It's called cell culture. Same thing with amnios. We, we take the cells and we grow them up in an incubator And then we look at them after we treat them very specifically and we can look at the karyotypes, so all the chromosomes for each cell from the baby or from the pregnancy. And then we can say, yes, this definitely has an extra 21. So it has Down syndrome. So it's it's more uh, definitive. Okay. And that would be the more invasive option, I think is what most people think of it as. So now we also have this, it's called... NIPT, non-invasive prenatal screening. I had to like think about it for a second what the acronym was. But essentially, there's all these tiny bits of DNA floating around in mom's blood from okay. the placenta. Oh, um, cool. And we can use that to look at it because of the sophisticated technology that we have. And we can like make it amplified so that we can see the numbers better. And essentially from there, we are able to determine your risk better than those old screens. So we can say with more certainty, like you have a higher risk of whether it's trisomy 21 or like a a deletion, like the George or something like that for the baby. Now, how many weeks gestation would you have to be to qualify for NIPT? I think the most of them are validated for nine weeks. We've done them earlier in like early pregnancy loss, but they aren't nearly as accurate. And it's because like even though we can amplify the DNA ourselves to look at things, anything before then it's super, super low. Okay. So it's hard to it's hard to get a handle on that. But I I think most women are offered around that initial anatomy scan, that 12-ish weeks mark. And okay. I know in the science world that they're pushing more for that just to be like a universal test, the NIPT. And, so interesting uh, because well, this is going to say a lot about me. So this is why I have so many questions. Like both of my children were born at advanced maternal age and they, they're five and six now. So, I mean, it wasn't really that long ago, but they definitely suggested that I go to like maternal fetal medicine and I get these things. So correct me if I'm wrong, my provider, I said, well, why would I, why would I get that test? What would it tell me? And the provider was very honest with me. And the provider said, 
a lot of people choose to not continue their pregnancy based on the data. Or if something is different about the genetics, then it may help you prepare in advance for whatever may be happening. If there's like a surgery or, you know, special care or something like that. And so, you know, my husband and I thought about it. And then we were like, for me personally, for my body, it has nothing to do with my beliefs, but for my body and those babies, termination wasn't an option regardless of the outcome. And then I was like, well, we're, you know, we are people that have resources and time and family and support. And so we kind of weighed all those decisions and said, okay, if something was wrong, then we could just find out at the birth because we would have a team of people, like we're in a big city and a hospital and the surgeons. And and so we made the decision not to. And so whether that was irresponsible or not, I don't know. But I wanted to kind of get your opinion to hear, was my provider correct? Like, are there other reasons besides accepted termination or preparedness that you could see, Katie, as reasons to get that screening done? For sure. So I would say, and you're talking about the non-invasive option or or any of them right now? What I was offered, pretty much all of them. I mean, what I was offered was the first blood screen. You know, when you find out you're pregnant, your advanced maternal age and that level one, I can say, I'm assuming if you agreed to level one and they found something, I'm assuming most people would continue on. Most people continue on, but not everybody. In this journey, it's very much dictated by like your comfort level. As far as the initial screening goes, like that very first level, if you were going to do the, like the blood test, the older version where it's just the hormone levels, I mean, that's really just to know your risk and go to the next step most of the time. A lot of people use the non-invasive version to find out the, the sex chromosomes of the fetus. Oh, so a lot of people sense. are like, the doctors are like, we'd like to know the other stuff. And everyone else is like, well, I don't want to know if it's a boy or a girl, you know? Like, right. <laughs> so that's what a lot of people use it for, which can get a little dicey because when I did it, we were offering it internationally. And there's some countries that don't let you do that for very specific reasons. Okay. Oh, um, yeah, I can think of a couple. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, that's that's the base level. But then as far as for purposes of like, using it in your decision-making, I would say in addition to people wanting to know for purposes of like how to continue it or not, that's usually a little later into the process. Not around 12 weeks is when a lot of people find that portion out. I'd say that's a little later when we see on ultrasound that there's some really big issues. I mean, people use that to either prepare themselves emotionally for the likely outcome as far as if they go to to birth and maybe that will dictate like hospice care. As I've mentioned previously, there's certain associated issues like with Down syndrome, there's an increased risk of certain types of cancer. So you like know what to look out for. If the baby has a heart issue, there's a particular, I mean, there's all kinds of heart issues you can have. So part of the genetics would be like, is that DeGeorge? Is that this other thing? And then you can't necessarily always find that out. And then knowing the baby would need surgery upon or delivery. Just like the, yeah, the like plan of care from okay. the moment that they're born, you know? Okay. 
what I'm uh, hearing is everyone don't do what I did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do, knowledge do, is okay, power. Some people, some people, and particularly I know around here, don't even do any of it. So it's it's definitely up to you. For me personally, I'm working the area, right? And I was like totally paranoid and was like, I want to know everything. And so <laughs> I was like, give me what I, I mean, I didn't have an amnio because it wasn't necessary. And that they only really do an amnio unless it's absolutely necessary because it is invasive. But I was like, give me whatever tests you want. I did like, um, I've looked at my own chromosomes a number of times. I've looked at my husband's chromosomes a number of times. Cool. Um, I did like recessive carrier panel where you look at all your genes and say, do we have any increased risks of like us both having a mutation in particular genes? And we both come from very distinct, distinctly different, I guess, genetic backgrounds. So there was very little risk of that. But even after I looked at it, it was like, yeah, neither of you have any. And I was just like, I wanted to know everything. For a person like me that really prefers that, or if it's going to like calm an anxiety to know, that's another, that's another benefit of the screen to just be like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, cool. In retrospect, when I look back, I think I was scared in a different way. Like totally. I was so much older. This was my only chance at becoming a mom. And I just wanted to enjoy my pregnancy. And I remember like just thinking, I, at least I have, no matter what the outcome is, at least I have this nine months of this dream I've always had, you know? Yeah. Well, cool. This is really interesting. Now, my last question before we move on to your birth story would be people are listening from all over the world and every state in the United States. Sure. So is this a particular test? Like if you're in the middle of rural, I'm going to pick on Montana because I... I love Montana, but if you're in the middle of rural Montana, do you just ask for a specific test? I mean, like, or a specific lab? I wouldn't say a specific lab because there's okay. like, it's based on your insurance for one. Um, oh, okay. Also like the doctor has to be comfortable ordering the test. Like I'm pretty certain I can't just be like, I'm going to pay out of pocket and order this thing. They would be like, Got you it. have no credentials. You can't do this. <laughs> okay. So even, even when I had my, my, my non-invasive screening this last time with my, with my son, I had to talk to the genetic counselor at my job that I like work with because they were like, you have to talk to a genetic counselor to be able to get this test. And that's, I think, a good thing to have because a genetic counselor, for anyone who doesn't know, is like the middle person between the medical establishment and mom and baby, you know? Okay. So they're the person that explains the test, explains the results, advocates for you regardless of what you want. Like okay. if you want to continue a pregnancy, they are going to be like your person to be like, no, this is what she wants. Um, she wants this testing. She wants, blah, blah, you know, that kind of thing, helping you yeah. navigate that regard. So I am a big fan of genetics counselors. They are, they are amazing people and mostly women, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, all I hear from that is advocacy, advocacy, advocacy. So if you are interested in what Katie and I are talking about, and this is something that you want to explore, then make sure you speak up and you advocate for this type of testing if it's not being offered to you. Right. If you're in a more rural area, it might be harder to get the invasive testing. You'll probably have to go to a larger medical center in a city, I would imagine. But as far as like getting the test after you have that, they send them out everywhere. I mean, we get stuff from Alaska. We've gotten stuff from Hawaii on occasion. I mean, there's, there's ways to get it pretty much anywhere once you get the order and you have the sample. Okay, cool. All right, Katie. Well, I am so excited to hear your birth stories. <laughs> We're going to dive pretty deep into your second pregnancy. 
But will you just share with us, like when you were becoming a mom for the first time, like with your four-year-old, like what that looked like and kind of a high level overview of your birth? Sure. So my husband and I got married after dating for like three and a half years. I don't remember something like that. So we knew each other pretty well when we got married and my husband's older than me. He was finishing his PhD when I met him finishing my undergraduate. And we both know we wanted kids. And by the time we got married, I was thinking about going to graduate school, but I was also kind of like, I don't know, maybe maybe we should just like have a baby or something. (laughs) And so (laughs) we actually like started trying pretty soon after don't tell my mom, but mainly slightly before we got like actual married. (laughs) So we got married. um, And then a couple months, like four months later, I got a job offer to come out West and we knew we were both going, but so I took it. And then my husband actually continued working on the East coast. So we lived apart for a couple of months. So that like, doesn't count. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so when we did reunite and bought a house and everything here on the West coast, we started trying again. And like, I mean, I, I know how the reproductive system works. I taught a class for teenagers at the health department. I know that it's unlikely that you get pregnant the first time you have unprotected sex, but like, I was like, we've prevented this, like, as a woman, you like intentionally try to prevent something for so long and be taught like one time, one time, and then you stop and you're like, all right, I'm ready for the one time thing. And it's like, nope, being someone who thrives on information, I like look for it talked to my doctor and I was 25-ish at the time. And they were like, oh, you're fine. Like, just relax. You know, that very unhelpful bit of advice. Yeah. We continued to try. I monitored my ovulation pretty hawkishly, I would say. Okay. (laughs) Mainly because like, I don't know if it's my personality type or the field that I worked in and was trained in, but like, I'm a scientist. I do experiments. I'm very meticulous. Like, (laughs) anywho. So yeah, we monitored it for quite a while and nothing was happening. I think I went and saw the doctor about a year in, like at my yearly whatever, and was like, hey, um, so this is still not working. And she's like, yeah, well, we'll like check out your, we'll look at your uterus and see what's going on. She was like, well, you have irregular periods. And I mean, that's somewhat common, like across the board. So she still wasn't that concerned. The fact that I was still pretty young, she was also like, whatever, it's fine. Which is like annoying when you really are trying to do it. And even though I was young, I was just like, yeah, so like, shouldn't this be working if I'm so young and fertile or whatever? Well, I'll interject right here. I interviewed Mrs. North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And she also has PCOS and she was a cheerleader at Chapel Hill and was like young and healthy and no signs of PCOS. Yeah. And um, so she has, a, it's hashtag start asking and mm-hmm. her platform is encouraging young women, young women that may have an irregular period or different things to just start asking some questions long before sure. you're, you're interested in having a baby. So I felt like that was like a good place to kind of interject is like what she's trying to prevent with her start hashtag start asking movement is a 25 year old with an irregular period who wants to become a mom. And this is the first time we're asking questions about our fertility. Yeah. So we went to that appointment and I was starting to get a little concerned. And I think I was just like a little superstitious because I worked in prenatal genetics. So I was like, this is the universe's way of being like, 
of course I would have like an issue, <laughs> which is silly, but whatever. We go to different places when we're in that zone. <laughs> mentally. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And so, uh, so I did the ultrasound after a couple months and they found a number of polyps, which is not particularly uncommon, especially in PCOS, just because of the excess hormones that you make. So one of them, she thought it might've actually been on my cervix. And like in the grand scheme of all of this, that's like what she was concerned with was I had a polyp on my cervix. But in addition, they like looked at my eggs and she was like, well, I came back in after the, the ultrasound and was like, oh yeah, you definitely have PCOS. And I was like, you squeeze me? Like, we didn't even talk about this. Like, what are you talking about? And she's so like, yeah, wait, this was period. the first time. This is the first time we like talked about it. I mean, oh, in I mean, my like, mind, you had, already knew you had PCOS. Like, I mean, I probably, as a scientist and like knowing how to look into certain things, I probably should have known, but like, whatever, here we but were. Here you were. This was your diagnosis. She, she yes. comes back in the room and is diagnosing you with and PCOS. And she's basically just like, yeah, you've got this, this, and this. You definitely have PCOS. <laughs> okay. So let tell me what are those things? So, okay, so the, the polycystic ovaries, which is like when you look at the eggs and there's like a lot of follicles and it's like you have a whole bunch of eggs essentially, but they don't mature correctly. So a lot of times you don't ovulate at all. So you have what's called anovulation and you can like shed your lining and have a period per se, but there's usually much longer cycles. And I knew based on my ovulation tracking that my like LH, my luteinizing hormone would go up but like would never hit that solid smiley face if you've used the, the ovulation test. So it's like LH and FSH, they never like coalesce to the right level to, to release the egg in like a, the right way or whatever. Anywho, so she's basically like between that, she said weight gain, but like I haven't been overweight my entire life. So I was like, okay, whatever. Like, that's fine. I have some excess a little bit of excess facial hair, but I'm like kind of hairy in general, thanks to my dad. So like whatever. Oh, and then like my estrogen level and my testosterone levels from some previous blood work. She was like all this together, like, cause you know, PCOS is not like a, I can't have a blood test that looks at my genetics and says, yes, this is PCOS. It's like a collection of symptoms that your doctor is able to use to then say, okay, this is likely what this is. You know, a lot of the times women will have Insulin resistance, that's pretty common. I don't, that, that's not an issue for me in my PCOS. Yeah, so all that together, I think that was it, was why she was like, yes, this is definitely a thing, but first things first is this polyp on your cervix. And I was like, first of all, that sounds scary. And second of all, she was like, yeah, we gotta check it out, make sure that's not anything. So basically was like, at the time, I think she said, come back in like six months and we'll have the surgery. And I was like, six months? Like I have to wait six more months before we even like start to try and like fix this or whatever. I think she like heard my <laughs> desperation in my voice because she was able to like move some stuff around and get me in like two months or whatever it was. So I had the surgery. It's like a, it's pretty mild. It's like that conscious sedation thing where you're not feeling anything and not really knowing what's going on, but you're not actually under anesthesia. They went in and removed all the polyps and she was like, actually the polyp wasn't on your cervix. It was just really close to it and probably blocking it from the inside. Ooh, that's a so good that thing. Help. I, that didn't help me get pregnant, but having that gone, that's like just another hurdle to like not have to deal with. And then she like, so this is my regular OBGYN at the time. And she was just like, okay, well, like, good luck finding someone to help you. Cause like, I can't do this. That's not my purview. And I was like, what do you mean? Like you said, this is just PCOS. Like, what, what do you mean? Like, she's like, well, you have to find like someone to 
deal with your fertility specifically. Like we can only do it to a certain point. And again, I was like, why didn't you tell me this beforehand? I would have been like researching who to use and all this other stuff. So basically it's called a reproductive endocrinologist. They look at hormones specifically related to fertility. If you're ever going to go into like IVF or something, typically you use an RE, that kind of thing. There's a lot of levels before that though. You don't necessarily have to jump right in to IVF, which I later learned. And I was like, when I jumped into this whole PCOS journey, I was like, how did I not know this like whole world? Like I'm in science, I'm in genetics. I know all about IVF, like from a theoretical standpoint, how did I not know there's all this stuff in between? Like it was just, yeah. Or the human, the human story. Like I thought I knew it and I did not. (laughs) Yeah. It's so true. I mean, there's such a a big human story behind PCOS too, right? Like like before we ever get to the science part of it. Yeah. So from a doula perspective, I'm very glad that that polyp was not on your cervix because (laughs) I hate cervical scar tissue. Like I hate going into a birth with cervical scar tissue and I have a mom who's laboring very hard and her cervix is stuck at two because of the darn scar tissue from a previous surgery like that. So that's amazing. Mid-roll. Just wanted to take a quick little break and remind you of a couple things. One, if you are looking for reducing that impact on the environment, saving money for these baby items that you're only going to use a few times, make sure to use code BIRTHSTORY when you visit storkexchange.co so that Sindel and Ben will give you 20% off of your order. You can also follow them on Instagram at stork underscore exchange. And while we're talking about Instagram, don't forget to push pause and please follow me on Instagram at birth story podcast. All right, let's get back to this incredible birth story. So you went to see this reproductive endocrinologist and what were the next steps? So she, she was very helpful and just like laying it out and being like, because I was like, what about IVF and blah, blah, blah. She's like, hold up. We're not going to go there yet. Believe it or not. I'm, I mean, as much as people don't know about PCOS and like why it works in the body, the way it works, there are some like somewhat established treatment options. And basically it's like for my certain situation, we were like, you were probably not ovulating. So first things first, we got to see if we can get you to ovulate. So it's actually... The first step was called letrozole. It's technically, I think, a uh, estrogen blocker used in breast cancer or something else. So it's like actually, it's not really for this reason, but it's a pretty established, pretty established like thing you can do through an RE specifically. And it's the idea is to block your estrogen levels so that they stay low enough so that it mimics the right levels throughout your cycle. So you take these pills at the beginning of your cycle to try and get your estrogen down so that your LH and your FSH work together and then magically you ovulate, right? And so then there's like different levels, different dosages of letrozole and they want to start you at the lowest and work your way up essentially. So that's what we did. And when you do that, the RE wants to monitor your entire cycle to be like, are your follicles growing? So they want to like measure your follicles. Are you actually ovulating? And sometimes they'll give you what's called a trigger shot where it's like a shot of I can't remember the actual hormone, but essentially helping you release Progesterone. It. Yeah. So if it doesn't look like you're going to release it on your own at the right time, it'll help you do that. So it's uh, it's a lot of transvaginal monitoring, which okay. is in and of itself. Not comfortable. Like, 
Yeah. And like, I had to go, can't remember if it was at the beginning and the middle, but like there's multiple visits per cycle going in to make sure everything's good. The dosage was a little too low from what we were monitoring over a couple of cycles. So I went to like that mid level, which again, I didn't really experience that many side effects. I know letrozole is like the lesser of two evils when it comes to side effects. When we go to like metformin or clomid or something, it gets a little more intense. The end game here is to be as effective as possible with as little side effects as possible. So it's like a pros and cons, right? Yeah, (laughs) that makes sense. It's interesting that you're going into letrozole because all of my doula clients that have PCOS were on the metformin journey. Right. So, which, oh, I think it probably might be a geographical thing too. Who knows? Like, I mean, around here, the drug rep is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. I'm kidding, but not kidding. As a former drug rep, I am kidding, not kidding. (laughs) Okay. So, you take this medicine Mm -hmm. and And how does that make uh, all the vaginal (laughs) How does the medicine, did you feel okay on letrozole? Yeah. I don't recall anything out of the ordinary. I mean, like other, I mean, maybe a little more moody, but no more than like, if I got like a intense period or something, I don't know. Okay. But now we're what a year into your, about a year and a half, maybe a little year and a half, 18 months into a fertility journey. So now you're almost 27 years old. Mm, Yeah. Okay. That's a long time. (laughs) What next? So we continued monitoring it. It was pretty early in the journey, which by the way, at the beginning of the PCOS special diagnosis, I was like, I need somebody to talk to. And I went online and found like a Facebook group specific to Oregon um, that has fertility, has surrogates. It's, it's that community. What is the name of the group that you found? It's called Oregon Fertility Adoption and Surrogacy Support Group. And it's a Facebook group. Okay. And so in there, what did you find? I mean, it's just a bunch of women on different journeys, some longer than others, some don't end in a biological baby. I mean, they, they discuss everything from my situation where it's the very beginning and like, "Mm, what medication should I use? What should I be looking at to like people that have gone through and have been like, okay, we've tried this. We've tried IUI. We're moving on to IVF. That's not working. Should we do like egg donation? Should we use embryo donation? you know, all sorts of things like talking about hormone levels and being like, my AMH is this level, is that normal? How can I increase it, if at all, to surrogates that are in there talking about like, they also do part of that IVF journey because they're receiving the IVF product, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. still in vitro and they're part of that as well. And then moving on to like, there's a lot of families that end up being fostered to adopt just like a, a mix, but it works really, really well. So a lot of support, solidarity, not feeling alone. That goes a long way. Yeah. And anytime it was really wonderful because like anytime somebody had a loss or poor results on IVF, like we were all there to be like, I'm sorry, like this sucks. Like, you know, that kind of thing. And then whenever somebody would post a pregnancy test, we would all celebrate. Like it was really wonderful. And I think other than my husband, that's probably the first people I told when I did get pregnant. So. So tell me about getting pregnant from that point, 18 months. 
you're on Letrozole, you're finding this Facebook group. How it much about, longer? So it was, yeah, it was about two years by the time I actually got pregnant. It, I didn't do that many rounds of Letrozole before we found the one that worked and then like okay. timed it appropriately. So you were still able to conceive traditionally then? Yes. So it was mainly I needed a little help getting the egg out and then we took care of the rest. Cool. cool. Okay. <laughs> But still two years. Oh my gosh. It was a long two years. And like, I didn't really talk. I mean, I talked to some of my friends about it, but I don't know. It wasn't even necessarily that like, I felt like they would be uncomfortable. It was just, I didn't want to have to talk about it all the time. I wanted to talk about it on my terms when I felt like it, things I wanted to, I didn't want to be asked about it. That's for sure. So like, that's why that online group was perfect because I could go there when I needed it. I could support other women like when they wanted support and it just, it just worked. Now, when you are in this medical journey, mm-hmm. do you find out that you are pregnant at, with an at-home test? Yeah. Or is it go to the doctor and find out that you're pregnant? I definitely don't wait the regulated two weeks of <laughs> being on a test as soon as possible. <laughs> okay. Did you have any signs of like signs or symptoms of pregnancy? Like, did you have a gut feeling you were pregnant before you found out? I did not have a gut feeling. If anything, I, at that point was trying to tell, like, I didn't want to get my hopes up every time. So I was like, "Mm, probably not. Like, probably not. Like, that's what you tell yourself to not be devastated every time, even though you still are. I don't know if there were any signs because I mean, again, when I was in that mindset, every little thing was surely a sign. So, I mean, probably not like nothing that really stands out because I overanalyzed everything already. (laughs) So. So you found out at home and was your husband with you? Nope. Nope. I just like came home and peed on the test after work. <laughs> okay. And did you call him or did you have he to wait for him? He came home and I had bought a onesie that I figured would be for another friend. Cause I mean, I'm like right in that age range where people are having babies. And when I saw that I was pregnant, I was like, I'm going to keep this onesie for us. <laughs> so I put it in a bag and I gave it to him when he came home. It says rad like dad. <laughs> so cute. And when he opened it, he was like, okay, who are we giving this to? And I was like, no, it's for us. Like, <laughs> oh, congratulations. Okay. Right. All right. Well, Katie, can you tell me about your birth with that child, with your daughter? It was uh, surprisingly smooth and easy. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was at a hospital, but I did unmedicated. I had a doula who was fantastic. I mean, I like waited till I couldn't talk to contractions, showed up the hospital eight, mi- eight centimeters and she was born, I think less than five hours later. So. Wow. See the power of a doula. Congratulations. <laughs> really? Cause she knew what was going on and my husband did not. So. Yeah. Well, I will also say, I think there's a balance to like a lot of my clients that I, and maybe it's cause they're working with a doula. I don't know that I've had long fertility journeys sometimes end up with a, maybe an easier birth story on the end of it. Well, we're going to really kind of dig into your second birth story, but there are some twists and turns with number two that I want to like share with our audience. So tell me about getting pregnant again. Was it a similar journey now that you know that you had PCOS? It was much quicker because we knew what the issue was and essentially did the same medication, had to increase the dosage slightly, but same thing, conceived at home. (laughs) you know, old, old fashioned way in that regard. All right. Now, how many, how long, how many cycles did that take you? I think it was three again. Okay. So three cycles. Now let's talk about your pregnancy. 
How'd it go? It was pretty uneventful until the end. <laughs> I had to talk. Uh, so it was just, you know. An, another day in paradise. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> other than being like sick forever <laughs> at the beginning, it's kind of funny because I did throw up a lot so much so that when my daughter saw me going to the bathroom, she would, she would come behind the door and be like, huh, huh, huh. and I was like, don't, do not mock me, child. Like, <laughs> Some would call it modeling. (laughs) I did end up taking medication for for being sick all the time. But other than that, I had the the non-invasive screen for my own wanting it. But otherwise... Everything was clear? Okay. Yeah. I'm excited. I I kept saying like, I'm ready to have this baby. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to be unmedicated again and like go for it. I'm going to like know what I'm doing. It'll probably be super fast because my first one was pretty quick. So it'll probably be fast. Like this is going to be, this is going to be great. And I got a, a doula again because like- Same like, doula? No, she had gone to midwifery school, unfortunately. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but another great doula in Portland, Oregon. Yes. Okay. Yes. Tell us about this grand finale. I mean, I sort of know a little bit from your <laughs> inquiry, but not too much. So what happened at 35 weeks? At 35 weeks, it was just another day. I was taking my daughter to get ready to go to the park. We had just moved into a new house like a week before that. And I was going down the stairs holding her. She was mad about something. And I think she flailed as toddlers are known to do. And in order, I don't even know if I did it on purpose or if it was literally instinct, but I went to go catch her and I slipped and, and fell on the stairs and landed again, don't know if it was instinct or just luck per se, but uh, landed right on my back, right? Like on my, on my foot and knew it was really bad. The second it happened, I mean, thankfully I landed the perfectly right way to not hit my stomach because I was 35 weeks and to not drop my daughter who like barely registered anything had happened. She was like, okay, whatever. But I was in a lot of pain and like but tried your, to stand up and it But your right work. side of your body was not, not well. Not good. And I didn't have my phone on me because maternity pants don't have pockets. So basically had, and I was by myself with my daughter. My husband had gone to work. So it was like 10 in the morning. I didn't have my cell phone on me. I had just closed all the windows because we were getting ready to go. So I couldn't even like yell for help. And even if I did, like nobody knew who we were. We had just moved into that neighborhood. So basically like had to army crawl to the kitchen where I knew my phone was to be like, this is bad. I I tried calling my husband who didn't get my message because he was in a meeting and was like, what do I do? And so I called 911. I was like, I don't don't know if this counts as an emergency. And when I called and the operator was like, yeah, no, you you did the right thing. Like this is the right thing. Because here's the thing, even though you felt like, let's air quote, like correctly, right? To like not hit your belly. Any fall or impact can cause a placental detachment right. or and, a partial detachment. And so that's where I would always call 911 if you have a fall like that or go straight to the hospital if you have someone there that can take you to the hospital. Yeah. I mean, I, we probably would have had to call 911 anyways because I couldn't walk and my husband wouldn't have been able to get me into the car. So right. Like, so I was like trying to not freak out for my toddler's sake and to not like go into shock and go into premature labor or something. Right. Um, oh my gosh. I'm like, yeah, anxiety I was like hearing this. in my kitchen and I was waiting for somebody to get there. I told them I was around back 
when I was able to reach up and like unlock the back door so they didn't have to like break down any doors and like scare the bejesus out of my daughter and my dog. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's funny now. It was not funny at the time. It's not, I'm hearing it and I'm not laughing. I'm like full of anxiety. I'm like, I need to know, I know right? Well, what happened. Whatever. <laughs> so yeah, so the firefighters came. Um, my mother-in-law lives close by. The, the 911 operator actually ended up continuing to try and get in touch with my husband after I hung up, which was a godsend. And uh, so he was able to contact my mother-in-law who came to get my daughter before he could get home. I mean, the logistics of it all actually worked out pretty well, all things considered. Thank you. Daughter, I coming and was like, this is so cool. And it's like, is it though? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but so we went to the hospital, had my x-rays done. My husband met me at the hospital and he's a PhD, but like he gives me a hard time about a lot of stuff. And he was like, I don't think it's broken. It doesn't look broken. It's probably fine. And they came back and it's like, actually it's broken in three spots. And I was like, Good thing you're not a doctor, like talking to my husband. <laughs> At 35 weeks pregnant. I yep. mean, okay. So as a doula right now, I'm in panic mode because I'm yep. like, how are you going to squat? How are you going to walk? How are we going to move this baby out for someone who is desiring an unmedicated birth right. with a doula? So what happened? Did you have to have surgery? Yeah. So they don't do surgery immediately because the swelling is too much. <laughs> oh, I thought maybe because you were pregnant. Well, that's the thing. They were like, we have to do this as soon as possible because the hormones in your body actually encourage your bones to heal faster than if you were not pregnant. So if we wait till the baby's born, there's a high probability we'll have to re-break it and then do it anyways. Okay. And so I was like, oh, okay, cool. Just so, what you want, general <laughs> anesthesia. General. Well, that's that's like, the while thing. You're pregnant, you know? they, will not, they don't want to give you anesthesia. So I was awake for my- Oh my God, no. I can't later. No, I know. I mean, it's the they, worst. It's they like put the you worst. under general for a C-section sometimes. Yeah. Well, they gave me a spinal for my foot. Um, okay. So I, and I like had my own person monitoring my son. Did they give you Versed? I need to know where your, how did they make your brain go away? They didn't. I, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't I was handle it. very much aware of what was going on the whole time. I cannot handle it. It's so funny because in my job, I watch women have C-sections all the right. time that are awake and like whatever. But in my mind, that's very different than like fixing a broken foot in three places you're awake. Oh my gosh. Okay. Did you yeah. please just tell me you didn't feel anything? I mean, no, I couldn't like feel any pain, but you could definitely feel pressure. And that's kind of worse actually. <laughs> okay. Okay. And I did not like the spinal, not that anybody likes it, but like Mm-hmm. I, they were like, don't eat before you come because that makes people throw up. If you don't eat beforehand, you won't throw up. And like they did the spinal, which is just so weird. It's just like such a weird sensation. And then I laid down and immediately threw up and they're just like, well, sorry. Like, yeah. And then you're like, can you put some Zofran in my IV, please? I mean, the team was wonderful and yeah. tried very hard to accommodate, but it was just a crappy situation. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, so Katie, I can't even imagine that, but you stay pregnant. I did. You heal-ish. How'd you know you were in labor? So I could feel the contractions at like eight o'clock. I guess it was 38 weeks and six days. So right before 39 weeks. I mean, I could, I, I recognized them somewhat from before and was timing them and they weren't very long or intense contractions, but they were becoming regular. 
And because I couldn't walk, I couldn't even bear weight on my leg at that point. It was still in a soft cast post-surgery. I was telling my husband and my mom who happened to be staying with us because of this. I was like, I don't know what this is. My husband's like, okay, well then you need to like spend the night downstairs just in case, because like we can't move you from upstairs to downstairs while you're like in labor or something later. Anywho, like a, a few hours later, it was like still happening. And I was like, we should, we should probably just go check because like, this is not when I would typically go in if I were in any normal circumstances with a baby. Right. Like, I don't want to get to the point where I'm in intense pain and also can't walk. So. <laughs> right. I would totally agree with this assessment and yes. just get settled. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So we went in uh, like an hour later and it was just like the most ridiculous thing because we were turning to go on the highway and it's like 11 o'clock at night on a Thursday and they're just like painting the lines of the crosswalk. So we had to wait like an extra 20 minutes to go. It's like, what is going on? Well, thank God you left early. Yeah. You know? So then we get on the highway and when we're getting ready to get off on our exit to be at the hospital, it's like this exit's closed right now for some random reason. I was like, are you effing kidding me? Like, just like- get me there. <laughs> so yeah, we got there. They Tell me they put you in a wheelchair, right? To like wheelchair. Yeah, to like in the inside. Yeah, yeah. And then they like checked me and they're like, well, you're like, I can't remember. It was like one or two centimeters dilated, which is not that much. But if you want to like stay and see, because my husband was like, could you just admit her? Because we can't keep doing this over and over like, right. in her condition. I like labored in the bathroom of that initial like check-in room. Triage. Yeah which is not ideal, but like, whatever. Mm. I didn't even care at that point. Right. I was like totally naked, like already. Did they give you like a, like a handicap chair to sit in? Oh, they just oh. like, like, we'll come like back. In my time. mind, I'm trying to prepare a birth circuit for you. <laughs> I, like, had a, I had I not called my doula yet. Because, yeah. Ancient. Yeah. Okay. I had, I had not called my doula yet because we weren't at that point yet. But yeah, so they basically came back I don't know how many hours later and we're like, okay, so you have progressed. You're still only at like three or four or whatever it is, but we're going to go ahead and Fine. It. call yeah, it right. labor. Yeah. yeah. They were like, you're making progress. So that counts. So we went into the labor room, tried to sleep for a bit. There's only like so many positions I can utilize because. Right. I know that's what I mean. I'm creating a circuit. I'm like, okay, maybe hands and knees. Yeah, sort of. (laughs) Maybe in the shower on a a stool, like a handicapped chair or something. So that was a real downer was that I was planning on using the tub because I liked that the last time, but because I had the soft cast, I could not get it wet. So I I could not use water this time either. I would have had five trash bags around my... (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. So what did you do? What do you remember? Laying on your side? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. By what, oh, before my too. doula got there, my we called, I think around like five in the morning to tell her her name's Nicolette and she's an angel come okay. to earth. So, yeah, she brought some kind of thing for me to lay on as well. I can't, I don't know what it's called. And um, But yeah, she brought some tools too. Plus she's just really great with like touch and calmness and all that stuff. So yeah, hips. Squeezes and massage go a yep. long way. Yeah. So there was like, yeah, I think like a total of three positions that I could utilize for the entirety <laughs> of the labor. But yeah, she she made it work. I mean, it was pretty unpleasant. 
but and you made it work because yeah. that's what women do, you know. Yeah. And it was um, it was hard because like every step of the way, it felt like why can't this just be easy? So like when they gave me the uh, antibiotic this time because I was GBS positive, the first time it was fine, and then at the nurse or at the shift change they went and did it again while the new nurse was like coming in, but they didn't dilute it properly. And if you don't do that, it burns like a whole, whole lot. So like my arm was on fire and I'm like having a contraction at the same time. And I'm just like freaking out and like Nicolette's like running to get somebody to like fix it. And that was just the worst. (laughs) Okay. I have to interject because at this point you have a doula and you're still planning on an unmedicated birth, which like, Hey, I'm a doula. I love unmedicated births. Like we find our power, we roar our baby out. There's nothing like it. But I'll be honest, if I broke my leg and someone told me that there was a double, like the epidural was double, it was like, it takes away the surges and it numbs my leg. I probably would have been like, let's do that. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was basically like after the spinal, I was like, I really didn't like that. Not that the spinal and the epidural are the same. They're, they're different, especially a good epidural. You can still kind of feel stuff, you know, but I was kind of scared of that part. And to be completely honest, like I didn't want it to slow down labor to cause needing Pitocin or something to cause a heart issue to need a C-section because I was like, I cannot have a C-section because I cannot like not walk and also not have a core. Like, what am I going to do if that's yeah. the case? I was terrified of having a C-section. I mean, if I needed it, like if there's an emergency, like whatever, no, but I can't think of anything worse than having a broken foot and trying to recover from yeah, major abdominal yeah. surgery. So you're yes. smart. You're smart. So that's saying. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I did it both ways. I had an epidural and I had an unmedicated birth. I'm just saying, like, oh, it would have been tempting. I think is what I'm trying to say. It would have been very yeah. tempting. Like it was just a slower birth overall, a slower labor, and it's because I couldn't move. Like 100, percent I know it's because I couldn't move. Of course, if you are not upright and not moving, it you're going which is why epidurals increase your length of labor by about 33% because you're laying there, not moving. And so same thing, we need to be upright and we need to be moving. And when you have a broken foot, that's really impossible. How long did you push for? Well, the actual like labor leading up to it, I think was like, we came to the hospital around like 11 PM. And then I didn't push for all that long. So 12 noonish the next day I started pushing and I think I pushed for like an hour maybe oh so your labor was only just it was maybe still, 13 or 14 hours still pretty quick but very intense yeah. because of, like I mean I had an unmedicated birth before was able to manage it but I also had a lot more tools at my disposal it was really hard and painful and I mean even when they were like okay well let's try and break your waters to like I think the midwives that I worked with there were like, we need to have this as efficient as possible because she's like already in a real hard spot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so even when they like tried to break my water, they couldn't reach it just yet. Like everything along the way was just difficult. So yeah, I pushed for like, I don't know, an hour or less. And he was there and he was quiet when he came out. And I was like, I was really concerned that something was wrong because he was quiet and because they had like been pushing to like get this done now. And I was like, what, what's going on? And they were basically like, absolutely nothing. Just we need to get this baby out of you for your own sake. Like, <laughs> But yeah. And then he was there. How much did he weigh? Oh my gosh. Second kid syndrome, right? Eight pounds something. <laughs> okay. So not small. 
you know, no, for, and for 38 weaker. That's not a small baby. Yeah. That's another thing they said that like, I had him right on 39 weeks and they were like, if he had been in there for another week or so, like that would have been a, a big baby. Yeah. yeah. Oh my, my kids have really big heads. So <laughs> I know I always say I had a 10 and a half pound baby and it was fine because his head was the 50th percentile. Oh, so he go. was, he was long and thick, but his shoulders were narrow and his head oh, was small. Yeah. So he just slipped right through there. You know, it was totally fine. Katie. Oh my goodness. We learned so much from you today. We learned about cytogenetics. We learned about PCOS. We learned about how to advocate for ourselves if this is something that in two ways, we learned how to advocate for ourselves early on in your pregnancy if you want to have some screenings. And then with PCOS, like what those signs and symptoms might be and don't ignore them and hashtag start asking. And so We give you a virtual hug here for that long fertility journey because there's a lot of emotion in there that we didn't talk about for those two years, but I'm very thankful that you are a scientist and that you advocated for yourself and that you found a way to become a mom to these two beautiful children. And I'm just very thankful for having you on today. And I'm so sorry you (laughs) broke your leg at 35 weeks. I mean, this is crazy, but you did it. You did it. It was a very hard labor and you did it. And I am proud of you. Last question before we go, tell us what your favorite baby product is so that everyone can add it to their registry today. I would say my favorite baby product has to do with breastfeeding. It's called the the Haka silicone breast pump. I guess technically a manual pump, but not really. It just uh, sticks to the side that you're not nursing on. And is great for collecting anything that, that also comes up. Because you know, when you nurse a baby, you usually get the other side lets down too. And mm-hmm. this way I could collect anything extra, do a couple of pumps to get some out on the other side. And I was able to make a stash a lot quicker than the time before. Because I don't overproduce very much. So I wanted to save <laughs> everything that I could. Yeah. The Haka is one of the most brilliant inventions for breastfeeding and we will link to it in the show notes. Katie, I hope you have a wonderful day and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Heidi. Thank you, Sindel and Ben, for sponsoring this episode with Stork Exchange. Everyone, don't forget to go to storkexchange.co and use code BIRTHSTORY for 20% off. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like. 